Before we begin, I want to give everyone a quick announcement. This is Rabbi Yaakov Walby. Uh, this week, Parshas 8, I'm going to be out of town, and I will not be uploading an original podcast for this Parsha. However, I do have a class that I gave last year on Parshas Ekev, on this Parsha, and I'm going to be uploading it instead. Uh, one quick note, the audio quality is not as good as you have become accustomed to for me, so I apologize for that. Uh, and uh, please forgive me for that. Uh, regardless, next week I look forward to having a, an original podcast for Parshas Re for next week's Parsha. Enjoy. Um, Parshas Ekev. The word Ekev means a heel, like the thing that's in the bottom of your foot. Uh, in fact, it's part of my name, Yaakov. Then Jacob is is named after Ekev, as we know. It says when Jacob was born, he was. He had seized the heel of his brother. Uh, but Ekev also means on the heels of. And essentially this Parsha is, you know, dovetails really nicely from the previous two Parshas, where it's about, uh, you know, uh, 35 days before Moshe is going to pass away. And they're about to go into the land of Israel. Moshe, unfortunately, is not going to accompany them. He knows that. They know it. And therefore, he gets up and delivers this speech and this monologue uh, and this um, preparation for them before they go to the land of Israel. And over the course of Deuteronomy, we have 54 times where it's Moshe uh, warns the people to guard the Torah and to do the Torah. Uh, Just an enormous amount of repetition, not necessarily word for word, but in ideas. Uh, and obviously the reason why it has to be said so loudly and so often is because it's so important. You know, we, we're going to read in this week's parsha. Uh, you know, there's so many crucial uh, elements of, of, of observance as a Jewish nation and retaining our status as a Jewish nation because you go into the land of Israel and then suddenly what's going to happen? You know, all these artificial protections are going to fall away. Right now they're in this little bubble. They're in a bubble called the wilderness. It's a bubble because it's actually literally a bubble. They're, they're completely uh, surrounded by clouds of glory and by fire, and they have miraculous food and miraculous drink, and they have Moses who has a direct communication with God. This is not a natural state of, of a nation. This is a supernatural state of the nation. And this is not forever. And therefore, when this is all removed, when you take them out of the bubble, when you expose the people to the real world, quote-unquote, well, then every danger of the world is liable to happen. And therefore, Moshe uh, tells them and warns them again and again, and primarily, or for the most part, uh, um, mostly about idolatry, but about everything else. This, this is the real world. You're, you're in the minor leagues now. You're about to head into the major leagues and face 90-mile-an-hour fastballs. You've got to be very careful. Be ready for what's going to happen. Uh, of course, uh, we also see a lot of predictions about what's going to be the Jewish people. Uh, once they, you know, in future times. But I would uh, suggest, if we have the time uh, and patience, to just read it. Because I, I kind of felt, when I was reading it, that there's, um, of course, a lot of nuance, a lot of subtleties, and a lot of depth behind every sentence and every verse. But also, if you just read it at face value, it's the most remarkable uh, uh, muster lecture you'll ever expose yourself to. 
Uh, and so it's remarkable. And you go, just start from the beginning, and just read, just read. And he tells them about what happened in the past, and what's going to be the future, and what, what to what, what, what worry, at, worry from, and what, what, what are the dangers that you're exposed to, uh, um, et cetera, et cetera. It's very fascinating. Now, I want to point out a, a few things before we get into the, uh, to the main discussion. A few things that I highlighted uh, uh, from the Parsha that I wanted to mention. Um, some very famous verses that we, uh, that we are familiar with. Um, for example, in chapter 8, verse 3, uh, that Moshe kind of tells him, very interesting, he tells him that um, on bread alone man cannot live. Rather, man needs the word of God. So what he's telling them essentially is that you know, we know that we need nourishment, we need sustenance. And if you withhold sustenance from man, the man's going to die. You know why? Because the machine only works if it has certain sustenance and food and drink and whatever. Uh, but he says that's not bread alone. You need the word of God. What this is telling us, I think, is that man is more than a physical entity. And indeed, from the physical reality, all you need is bread and water. You're good to go. Bread, water, shelter, you're fine. However, that's not who you are as a human. You don't need just bread alone. That's your body. Your body is fine with bread and water alone. What you need as a human comprised of a soul as well as a body is you need the Word of God. What this does, it's comparing bread to body and Word of God to soul. Just like the body needs and demands sustenance, and if he does not have it, will wither and die, so too man's soul needs sustenance, and if the soul doesn't get it, it too will wither and die. And I want to say a little further that we find many, many, many references for comparisons uh, in Jewish literature between Torah and basic needs. Famously, we find that Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva, the great Tana, he tells the Jewish, the Talmud says that uh, uh, Hadrian, the emperor who assumed emperorship in the year 117, and he had the famous Hadrianic persecutions, uh, and he tells the Jews, you study Torah, we're going to execute you. You confer smicha, if you give someone rabbinic ordination, we're going to execute you. Not only that, whoever confers rabbinic ordination on someone else, the conferring rabbi, the recipient of the, 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 um, of, the, of the ordination, and the entire town in which ordination was conferred is going to be executed, slaughtered. Like, uh, that's the kind of reality that existed. Uh, you give a child circumcision, going to be executed. Uh, pretty, obviously, uh, stifling and marginalizing uh, decrees. That's why we know there was the famous um, revolt of Bar Kokhba as a result of that. But Rabbi Tiva said, I'm going to teach Torah anyhow. And a fellow came up to him and wrote, are you nuts? Are you teaching Torah? They're going to come execute you. And actually they did. But what did Rabbi Kiva respond to him? Rabbi Kiva told him, he says, yes, they'll, they may execute me. But if I don't have Torah, I'll die anyhow. And he compares it to the fish in the water. Right? The fish needs the water to survive. We need the Torah to survive. So that's another example. We have a verse that talks about Torah being like water. So it's oxygen, it's water, it's 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 bread, it's it's life, it's it's life giving sustenance. Now, our problem is that we don't feel it. This is this is our problem. We don't we don't have a sensory link between our uh, between our soul and our senses. 
So, for example, you know, when, when we drink a glass of water, well, we, we feel the glass of water. You know, when we shake a lulav on circus, we don't feel anything. We feel like we're shaking a branch and a fruit. It feels weird, probably. Because our feelings are connected to our body. And our body has no overlap in the spiritual realm. So even though your soul is being delighted, your soul is being taken care of, your soul is being nourished and sustained, and this is life-giving qualities given to your soul, it's a glass of water for your soul, you don't feel it. Now, obviously, the reason why you don't feel it is because if you would feel it, then you would have no free will, of course. But that's what the Torah is telling us. It's telling us that we have to reframe our perspective on what Torah is. What's it all about? It's not just some nice thing to have. It's some sort of uh, added bonus to have some meaning or inspiration or feeling or uh, purpose in life. You know, it's not critical. It's a nice thing to have. No, it's telling us that this is life itself. This is sustenance. This is our life. Without it, we're nothing. And you know what? That, that, to us, I think that should probably elevate the status of what Torah really is. I think it's a very nice thought that Moshe tells him just in one of the verses here I wanted to share with you guys. Um, a little later on, um, we have a um, chapter 10, verse 12 and 13, we have a few puzzling statements. And I say puzzling because it seems to be uh, oxymoronic. How so? The verse says as follows. Va'ata Yisrael, and now, O Israel, what does the Almighty God ask of you? Only to fear Him, to grow in His ways, to love God, and to, uh, to worship God with you, all your heart and all your soul, and to do all the mitzvahs. Right? So essentially it starts off with saying, like, you know, let's simplify it. Just boil, what does the Almighty really want of you? And then it says, love God, fear God, or go in the way of God. Right? Uh, love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, and do all the mitzvahs. That seems to be pretty exhaustive, no? <laughs> it's like, you started off really nicely. Let's simplify this to you. What does the Almighty really want of you? Like, let, let's just slow it down. Um, and it says, you know what he wants of you? Love God and fear God. Well, that really includes everything that is part of our relationship with God. Avinu Montano, our father, our king. Our relationship with him is one of a, of, of, a, of a child, of a loving father, and one of them a subject of a, of a, of, you know, of a, of a terrifying uh, ruler. That really encompasses everything with regards to our relationship with him. And then our character, to go in the ways of God. Just like God is merciful, we be merciful. God's kind, we're kind. Everything that is incorporated in God's qualities, which means every good quality, is something that we have to follow. That's the saying, we have to perfect our relationship with, with, with God, we have to perfect all our character, and do every single mitzvah. It seems to be more than what you started off with. And that seems to have started off with, let's let simplify it. So I, I, this, it's one of the very, very, very famous verses in all, of, uh, uh, in all of the Torah. And not only that, I'll tell you guys a cool little historical tidbit. So, Path the Just, Lutzato, he lived in, originally in Italy, then moved to Israel in the early 18th century. So, 1707 to 1746. Very, very, died very young, 39 years old. He wrote the book of Musar. The be all, not be all, end all, but the authoritative text on Musar. It's called The Path of the Just. In it, 
he follows a Brisa. Brisa is a Mishnahit era teaching brought down in the Talmud that tells you how to become great. Not only that, how to revive dead people. You want to revive dead people? Put the soul back in the body. You want to do that? You got to just, oh, you got to follow a simple plan. <laughs> uh, and it says, you start with Torah. Torah brings to Zahirus, and then to Zerizus, and then to Nikias, and then to Precious, and the Kedusha, etc. The last thing is you have to revive dead people. And we know if you, if you study about the episodes of, of reviving dead people, it's happened. At least you revive a dead, dead person. We have lots of examples of that. Um, of of the you know of great people that were able to do that they had that ability they had nature subjected to them not the other way around right? we know we say the Torah is the blueprint for for for, for creation anyone heard that line before Torah is a blueprint for the world Torah preceded the world istakil ba'araisa bara'alma God looked in the Torah and created the world. So if the Torah is the blueprint in the world, then the world is beholden to the Torah. Is that right? What came first? Torah. So if, if, if Torah is, uh, has dominion over the world, then someone who has Torah, who incorporates Torah, who becomes indistinguishable from Torah, well, they too would have dominion over the world. Well, how do you do that? Simple. Just follow those steps. It's not so simple. Uh, but it is uh, essentially the path from being uh, unremarkable, just a regular human, to being the most remarkable human around. Simple. Uh, that's what the book does. Now, in a earlier edition of the book, he wrote that he has used... Uh, he, he had two options when he was going to write the book. He was either going to use the verse in Parshas Ekev, or it was used the Talmud in, uh, uh, in Avodah Zarah, like we mentioned, to, as the backbone of the book, which is one of the great mysteries of all of, uh, of, all of uh, Jewish history, is what would this book have looked like had he decided to actually use this verse. But essentially, this verse is incorporating everything that we could possibly need to become great. Thus, when it says, perhaps, so this is one interpretation, when it says, what does the Almighty demand of us, besides for X, Y, Z, and then more, 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 <laughs> what it's telling us is, how do we become that great right, that we have it all? We have this world, we have natural world, we have Torah, we have nature, nature being uh, uh, dependent, subjugated to us, which is pretty remarkable. So I think that there's, there's one way to interpret this in, in a more uh, exhaustive uh, broad uh, sense. Uh, I think, additionally, another way to perhaps understand this verse uh, is, is like this. A little bit of a different twist on it. What does the Almighty demand of us? Well, there's a lot. The whole Torah is demanding of us. And you'll start from the beginning of the 10. That's the Torah means instruction. And instructions means commandments. And it's not the 10, it's the ten commandments. And, but it's not that. There's 613 commandments. There's a lot of commandments. Well, why, why are you trying to give a narrow definition? Well, the answer is, is that, yes, as a whole, right, every individual, every Jew has the same thing, the same responsibility. Yeah, this is 13 mitzvahs, and what it means to be Jew, and all the halacha, and everything. Right? We're all bound the same. However, what distinguishes one of us from the other? What, where does our individualism lie? 
Are we just trying to become all the same? Well, on, on one hand, yeah, really, because we have the same mitzvahs. You know, everyone has to have the same mezuzah. And everyone has to have the same tefillin. And everyone has the same kind of sukkah. Right? Our mitzvahs look very similar. You buy a matzah, we buy the same matzah, made from the same factories. On one hand. On the other hand, we find that the Torah was given 600,000 times. Every individual received their own experience. Everyone connected on their own level. So there is this duality. On one hand, we have the fact that there's this uh, uniform rules that apply to everyone equally. And then we have this idea that everyone has their own unique role. And everyone is independent. And everyone is special. And everyone has their own individuality. That's what this verse is talking about. Yes, of course, the entire Torah is a book that's telling us about what it is that are our responsibilities. However, what it's telling us in here in this verse is that every individual, each one in their own way, in their own, uh, with, their, you know, with, with their own qualities, with their own individual uh, uh, quirks and individual character traits, uh, they have to find what is their particular area that they're going to put tremendous stress and build their own unique individual uh, uh, role or individual status in their Judaism. Some people, it's about being very serious. Fear God. What does that mean, fear God? It means having a very serious relationship with God. It means not compromising on, on, on the letter of the law. For some people, it's about walking the ways of God. And that's putting an extra stress on becoming someone whose character is indeed worthy of being considered a, someone who is created in the image of God because the character seems to be the same, remarkable. For others, it's going to be loving God. And what does loving God mean? That's an entire class. Uh, but loving God means finding the joy of Judaism. It means making your kids happy and proud to be Jewish. Making Shabbat, it, makes, it means making Shabbat not a burden, but something which is enjoyable, incredibly enjoyable. Finding the meaning and the inspiration and the insight and the understanding and the purpose behind what we're doing. Everyone has to find whatever corner of Jewish life that they want to pitch their tent and settle down and make something special out of their individual entity and their individual qualities and and their role as a Jew. Pretty remarkable idea. Moving right along, we find another verse here. Very interesting verse. I think it can be very informative as well about a lot of different areas in our lives. Uh, we find a verse in chapter 10, uh, verse 19, where um, Moshe warns the people to love the convert. Why? Because you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. Now the word for convert and foreigner is the same in Hebrew. The word ger means a foreigner, but it also means a convert. There's a few questions here. Well, first of all, if someone, uh, a convert, well, they're Jewish, or they're certainly part of the verse that says love everyone, why would there be a need to add another mitzvah, love the convert? It seems like once you have a mitzvah to love everyone, well, who's included in everyone? Everyone. And the convert as well. Even a Muslim? Well, a convert, convert for sure. It's not so clear if you have to love non-Jews. Um, but if someone converts, 
then uh, if someone converts, then they, they, they convert. And they're, 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 they're Jewish like anyone else. They're no different. Uh, so why would there be another mitzvah to, to love the convert? You already have a mitzvah to love a convert. Uh, on one hand. On the other hand, it, it, adds another, it adds another reason. Why? Because you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. So what does that have to do with anything? Um, that's uh, questions that I, uh, uh, that I want to pose. I had an idea here. Some of you guys think about it. We find several times in the Torah, three times to be precise, that we have a mitzvah to love. We find famously in Leviticus 19, we have to love everyone as ourselves. We have to love everyone. But what if we don't like him? We still got to love him. What if we have a hard time with him? We still got to love him. What if they're business competitors? Still got to love him. Uh, you know, what if they don't stop talking in shul? Still got to love them, you know, uh, on one end. We have another mitzvah, loving God. The mitzvah to love God. And here, thirdly, we see mitzvah to love, to love the convert. And it seems to be problematic. It seems that, you know, love is an emotion, and you either have it or you don't have it, and it's not replicable. It's not like, you know, the Torah can say, eat matzah. Okay, make matzah, you eat it. No problem. Or we could say any action that the Torah demands of us, it makes a lot of sense. There's an action, do it, and you're good, you're good to go. Here it says, don't do something. It says, feel something. Feel love towards your fellow. Feel love towards God. Feel love towards the convert. What's the deal? How am I supposed What action ought I do to feel love towards someone? Well, what if I don't feel love to them? Is that a good question? Maybe it means, this is, uh, people have tried to answer this by saying, well, maybe when it says love your fellow as yourself, it doesn't mean to actually have the emotion. It means to act in the loving way. Problem is, is that's, that's not what it says. And we have other mitzvahs to talk about, about kindness. Um, so I was thinking maybe what this, this verse is telling us is an incredible insight. And that is a replicable, repeatable formula to love someone. You see a convert, you see an outsider, you see a foreigner, you see someone new. And what happens when someone feels like a pariah, feels like an outcast, feels out of place? Right? They have this unsettling feeling. Right? They don't feel like they're, you know, they're suppo- supposed to be there. And the Torah tells us you should love that man, love that person. Why? Because you yourself were once like that. Because you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. What it's telling us is that the way to love someone is to empathize with them. It's to know, think about what they're going through. To take some life experience that you have had in the past and try to uh, 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 superimpose that into what they're going through. To think about what someone else is going through and say, realize someone is going through the feeling that I myself have experienced as well in the past. The question of how we love God is a question that was asked before. And it was asked, Maimonides writes about it, in the book of mitzvahs, Sefer Mitzvahs. Maimonides wrote a compendium of all 613 mitzvahs. He wrote it in Arabic, but with Hebrew letters, very interestingly. Um, one of the great works of Maimonides. At, I'm sorry? No, no, no. Guide, Maimonides had the three major works of Maimonides, are Guide to the, Guide to the Perplexed, Commentary of the Mishnah, and Mishnah Torah. Or otherwise known as Yad HaZakra. Um, Yad HaZakra is 14 books that enc- enc- encompass everything of Judaism. It's the, maybe the most remarkable, well, not, not maybe, certainly the most remarkable 
uh, Jewish books since the Talmud, uh, which essentially is a synthesis of the Talmud. It's remarkable, remarkable. The scope is unbelievable. Uh, now, but he also wrote an additional book. He wrote many, many, many books. But another one he wrote was a book called Sefer Mitzvahs, the Book of Mitzvahs, wherein he delineates all 613 mitzvahs. Now, how do we know there's 613 mitzvahs? We know because the Talmud says there's 613 mitzvahs. What are the 613 mitzvahs? What is a general mitzvah and what is maybe a subcategory of another mitzvah? That is not clear. It doesn't say it anywhere. There's no source in Talmudic, Mishnaic, Midrashic literature that says what it is. Maimonides goes ahead and says, you know what, I'll write the book. And he writes, 613, 248 positive, and uh, 365. Not only that, he orders them in order of importance. So he says, I'll give you, we'll give the first, most important mitzvah first, and then progressively, you know, to, to, the, to, to the, you know, to the, always in, in, in order of importance. There are other commentators that wrote it in order of how it appears in the Torah. So we'll start off from thou should be fruitful and multiply. And then it goes into the mitzvah of brismila, of circumcision. It goes to the mitzvah of do not eat in the Gidanash, the sciatica. Those are the three mitzvahs in Genesis and moves on to Exodus, etc. And Deuteronomy has uh, many, 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 many mitzvahs as well. Um, primarily in the book of, in the Parshas, he states that it has the most mitzvahs of any parsh, any one single parsh in the Torah. Kisetze. We'll read it in a few weeks. Now, Maimonides in mitzvah three, right? mitzvah number one is have faith in God. Mitzvah number two is God is one. Believe God is one. Mitzvah number three is love God. And he asks her a question. How do you love God? And in fact, not only is he, does he ask the question, previously the Sifri, Sifri is one of the Mishnah and Talmudic era writings, right? Sifra, Sifri, Michal, Torah's Kohanim, uh, all the great writings that were um, uh, at that time, and they asked that question as well. Kate said, oh, well, how do you love God? And the formula detailed uh, is, I, I kind of hinted towards it when we talk, spoke about it, it's, it's finding meaning, it's finding joy, it's finding pleasure in life, in, in, in Judaism. Uh, how it's actually done is a pretty fascinating formula that Maimonides delineates, uh, wherein he says that there's four steps. Step number one, well, there's, there's three subjects and four steps. What are the three subjects? Torah, mitzvahs, and nature, science. One of those three, which is either you know, God's intelligence, the Torah, God's handiwork, science, the nature, the world, or God's commandments, the Torah. Take one of these three, well, maybe all three, but one of these three, and think about it and analyze it. Right? To think and use bone, which is a very deep insight. Right, very much uh, 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 deep and, and, and targeted thoughts about these issues until you have a breakthrough. And that could be a breakthrough in science, it could be a breakthrough in biology, it could be a breakthrough in genomes, it could be a breakthrough in any area of the sciences or any area of Torah or any area of mitzvahs. Have some insight. And then you have the pleasure of loving God. That's how you love God. And in fact, he says, this is the highest level of pleasure. Uh, and it's essentially, from other writings of Maimonides, we find that it is a crossover pleasure. 
not to be confused with the uh, car, the crossover. It's a pleasure wherein you cross over into another realm. It's not a physical pleasure. It's not something that can be quantified empirically. It's a spiritual pleasure. That's what it means to love God, to have spiritual pleasure. How do you do it? You've got to work hard. As we know, that the, the greater the pleasure, the harder it is to achieve. So if it's the greatest pleasure, well, then it's the hardest to achieve. But we have a formula. Um, I would assume that, of course, it's within a framework. If someone could have that same pleasure but not attribute it to God, that would not be love for God. It might well be the same pleasure, I would assume. Uh, but it, it's, well, I wouldn't want to say it's the same pleasure. I would say it's more like a, a very similar pleasure. But it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, in this context we're talking about when you associate that, when you attribute that to God's uh, incredible vastness. And, you know, that is where you have some sort of insight into God because we don't have any, any insight because he's beyond our capacity. But when we have this crossover, we kind of move into a different realm. That's what it means to love God. But either way, um, we find a very nice formula how to love uh, individuals. Uh, love the convert? Well, how do you love the convert? What do I, I don't know who he is. I'm supposed to love him. Well, okay, fine. Every individual you encounter, find some commonality that you have. Find some place to empathize with them. Think about what they're going through, and then you love them. Uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about here is uh, the Shema. And we see that uh, we know the Shema is the Pledge of Allegiance of the Jewish people. It's uh, what we say in the morning, we say at night, we say as we go to bed. It is uh, critical. And we find the section number two, or paragraph number two in the Shema, is uh, over here in chapter 11, uh, verse 13. I'm sure we're all familiar with it. It's the second part of the Shema. And uh, wherein we talk about reward and punishment. And reward and punishment is something that we don't necessarily realize off the bat as how central it is. Because for us, reward and punishment is, is a nice bonus. Uh, it's nice to get rewarded, and it's nice that the bad people get punished. Uh, however, philosophically, it is such a critical element to life itself. Because if there's no reward and punishment, if there are no consequences to our actions, then our actions are inconsequential. Our actions can only have meaning if they have repercussions, both good and bad. If there's no purpose, if there's nothing changes whether I do good or bad, well, then it doesn't matter if I do good or bad. Thus, our life only has purpose is because our actions have purpose, what we do has purpose, because it's reflected that these actions have ramifications. Good or bad, if I do something good, well, something good happens. If I do something bad, something bad happens. If it didn't matter if I did good or bad, well, then my life would have no meaning. So uh, when we read this, we have to think about the fact that this realm of, of, of Torah life, uh, where though this framework where we give uh, um, importance to reward and punishment, well that's important because without that we have, uh, we have no meaning in life at all, which is a pretty obviously terrifying thought. No one wants to live that kind of life. So those are some themes that we see in the Parsha. Um, uh, thanks everyone. Thank you. And we'll see everyone next week.